Hi, welcome to the Passion and Purpose Podcast. I am your host, that's me, Louis Giglio, and I'm so glad that you are joining us for this incredible conversation today. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I'm certainly enjoying having you along for the ride. We've had some amazing guests, and today, once again, I know you're going to be encouraged and inspired by a conversation that is out of this world. Today, we're welcoming a hero and a friend to me, astronaut Shane Kembro, who, as I am recording this introduction for the podcast, is currently orbiting Earth at 17,500 miles per hour on board the International Space Station. And just before liftoff to the space station, we had the chance to sit down and record an incredibly inspiring conversation about how to maximize our potential and reach our greatest goals. So please join me for my conversation with astronaut Shane Kimbrough. I can be more excited today to welcome to the podcast uh, a hero, a legend, and someone I have the privilege of calling a friend. And that is astronaut Shane Kimbrough, who is joining us today from Houston, Texas. So Shane, thanks so much for being a part of the conversation today. It's great to have you on our very first season of the podcast, and I couldn't think of any better better guest to have on than you. Thanks, Louie. It's an honor to be with you today, and I look forward to spending some time with you and your listeners. Yeah, you were talking just uh, before we jumped into the podcast interview about how many days it is before you do something pretty ridiculous. And uh, if people don't know, um, Shane is uh, on his way to space again, going to be traveling on the SpaceX Crew 2 to space and to the International Space Station with a crew of four people. And uh, this is pretty special. Um, I'm looking at uh, just how this all unfolded, and you are one of a handful of people who have actually traveled to space on multiple rockets. And I know you've been to space on the space shuttle, you've been to space on the Soyuz rocket, and now you're going on the SpaceX Dragon. And so only a handful of people have done that, and I think you're the only living American who has been into space on three different rockets. And so some might say that's uh, coincidence. I kind of think it might be destiny. How do you see it? <laughs> well, it certainly wasn't planned uh, by me anyway. Um, as, as we've talked in the past after my last flight, um, I wasn't expecting to fly again. So um, I was just doing a good job and I uh, got called up a little less than a year ago to take this incredible opportunity to fly on the SpaceX Crew Dragon. So um Robbie and I talked about it for a long time, decided uh, it was a great opportunity, something we shouldn't pass up, and uh, decided to go for it. And now uh, here we are just a few weeks away from, like you said, being the, the third, you know, one of the, the few people that have flown on three different spacecraft. So talk about that. You said you weren't planning on going to space again, and all of a sudden here you are going to space. That, how did that happen, and how did you process that decision? Yeah, very good question. Uh, we've, you know, before my last flight, I had a few things going on where I didn't think I was going to be able to fly, and all of a sudden things worked out. And these were medical issues that I'm talking about. So um, God just laid out a, you know, laid out His plan, and it was very clear that it was His plan to uh, the hurdles that we had to jump through and make happen. But the team really did a great job to get me prepared for my last flight. 
Um, and it, the kind of the tables turned on this one where a buddy of mine who was supposed to be in the position I'm in now um, had a medical issue just less than a year ago when he had to come off of the flight. And uh, so that left an opening where, um, believe it or not, there aren't that many people that could fill this spot um, and in such a short time. And since I just returned from flying, I, you know, all my qualifications were still up and uh, it just seemed like a perfect fit. And I was very fortunate that Pat Forrester, um, a friend of ours at the time and the chief of the astronaut office, had the confidence in me um, to uh, you know, ask me if I wanted to go fly in that seat. You have spent, um, according to my research, 189 days of your life in space. <laughs> you've been on six EVAs meaning that you've been outside, to put it in your language. We would all call it a spacewalk, but for you, I went outside. (laughs) You've been 39 hours outside, and you're one of uh, 242 people who have been on the station, on the International Space Station. So basically, the chances of doing any of those things I just mentioned are zero. (laughs) So how how do you see it working out? How did you get to be in a position to spend that many days in space, that many EVAs, that much time outside? How did Shane Kimbrough become that guy? Wow, that's that's a good one. And, you know, when I look back on my life, honestly, everything I was doing throughout my life was preparing me for those moments that you mentioned. And I wasn't doing it, you know, for that reason at the time. I was just, you know, I, I was brought up to work hard and my parents did a great job of just making sure I was brought up in a church, which is fantastic, but just the work ethic that I was brought up with from them was amazing. Um, I was, you know, we didn't have a whole lot growing up. Um, I think similar to your background, we just kind of scraped by and I think it made me appreciate every little thing I got along the way because, because of that. Um, I was always taught to treat people with respect, um, no matter who you were. And that really goes a long way. It sounds like it's a simple thing, but uh, as I've you know, been in the workplace for many years now, that is not very common. Um, and so I just think treating folks with respect um, gets you a long ways. And, and you're, as, as I'm kind of climbing whatever this ladder is you know, that you, you talked about, I think I was doing it the right way. I wasn't uh, stepping on people. I wasn't you know, putting people down so that I could make myself look better. Uh, I was just doing the best job I could, um, trying to be a good teammate, trying to be a good leader whenever I was put in a leadership position, and uh, just helping out the bigger team is, is kind of the big picture. So, yeah, it's it's weird to kind of come from you know Smyrna, Georgia, like you, Louie, and then end up um, you know in space uh, for the third time here pretty soon. But very fortunate and blessed, and you know it's it wasn't all my plan. Obviously, it was God's plan to make all that happen. I know that you flew Apache helicopters. You've seen things that a lot of us have not seen. So I do just, as even as a friend, want to say thank you again today for your service to our country. And I'm grateful, and I know the listeners today are grateful to you for that. Somewhere along the way, you were had this military career going. But at what point did Shane Kimbrough say, I think I want to be an astronaut? <laughs> Well, I, I said that way before I was in the military when I was a small child. And um, as you probably remember, a few folks listening probably do. That's when men were walking on the moon when we were small children. So that um, in itself started inspiring me. And I was just a young child. But um, I had the good fortune that my grandparents lived across from the Kennedy Space Center. And I spent a lot of time down there growing up. Um, my dad was to uh, deploy to Vietnam several times. So usually when he went over there for a year or so, we would go move down 
to uh, just north of Titusville, Florida, down by the Kennedy Space Center. My grandfather really was the inspiration. He would drag me out to see anything that was launching. So just living in that community for a while, it just was in my blood from an early age. Um, so I kind of always want to be an astronaut. Like I think any any person that was growing up my age, that was just kind of a cool thing to do. Now, even though I had that inspiration, uh, once I decided, you know, after high school I was going to go to West Point, I I thought that dream was gone. So kind of gave up on that. And then I knew once I graduated from West Point, I was going to be an army officer. And if I got lucky, I'd get the chance to go fly. And that all worked out. Um, and then shortly after being in the army, I met a gentleman who was wearing a blue flight suit. And I was like, uh, sir, what's your, what's your deal? And he's like, I'm an army astronaut. So I didn't even know they had astronauts in the army. And so I got talking to him and he gave me, a, <laughs> gave me a few pointers and uh, kind of got that fire lit um, to want to be an astronaut again. And uh, I wasn't you know, qualified at all at that point, but I had a few things to do like graduate school and some other things in the army to kind of check the boxes that I needed to be competitive for the astronaut program. And so I did all that and uh, I applied several times. And so perseverance is a nice trait for, for most of us that are here in this position. Uh, I think the fourth time they finally, I wore them down enough that they selected me as an astronaut. I think a lot of people listening just really leaned in more <laughs> to our conversation because everything goes great for Shane Kimbrough. Life falls into place. He is a graduate of West Point. He gets to fly to space, but you're saying three times they said, no, thank you. Uh, and then you just kept persevering. And that's all of our experience in life. Nobody, you know, gets a golden elevator ride to the top. So talk about the perseverance side of that and why did you keep going not after the first one i get going a second time but the third time and then the fourth time <laughs> why'd you keep leaning in yeah it's it was obviously a passion of mine at the time uh, it was something just um unique and different and that's something i've always wanted to do um just do things that people didn't think i could do that's something that's motivated me my whole life um even being from smyrna georgia um, nobody ever thought I could get into the Lovett school, which I ended up going to high school. And I, you know, I got lucky enough to do that. And then nobody from Lovett had ever gone to a military academy. So, um, that wasn't the, the driving factor, but it was just something like, oh, it's just so not, not private school, you know, is going to the military. So I'm like, I'm going to do that. <laughs> and then I got to West Point and nobody thought I'd really do very well. And I ended up doing pretty well academically and physically in military and, and, uh, played division one baseball there. And, and so just got some great opportunities and then I got the chance, like I mentioned to go to flight school, which is a pretty rare thing. Um, something that most of the cadets want to do. And I got that chance and, um, flying Apaches was, was kind of the next hurdle. Like there was only one Apache slot in my flight school class. And guess what? I got the chance to take that one slot. So, um, that was pretty amazing. And uh, to go right to combat my, on my first assignment was pretty rare at the time. It's pretty normal now, unfortunately, but uh, back in the day, it wasn't. And so for me to to be thrown in that position to learn um, how real soldiers act and operate in a combat environment was was special. And it, it absolutely set me up for success the rest of my Army career. Um, and as you mentioned, at some point, I had to kind of derail from the main Army. And that was kind of uh, mid-career, um, I decided to go to graduate school in the Army, which was amazing because it was fully funded and it was at Georgia Tech. So that was awesome. <laughs> so I got to come back to Atlanta for a few years there and get my graduate degree. Um, and then it kind of put me on a different path of not going back to the Apache helicopter world, but then to do something else. And so the something else for me was 
I got the chance to go back to West Point to be an instructor there for a few years, which is fantastic. Um, really rewarding experience working with the cadets. And I, and I didn't go there happily. I was I wanted to go back you know, to flying like uh, most pilots want to do. But I went there begrudgingly, but it ended up being the most rewarding uh, tour I've ever had in the Army. So that was fantastic. And then on my that was my four, the third time I applied to be an astronaut was while I was at West Point. And I didn't get selected, but uh, I kind of came out in a highly qualified list. And that's when I got a call from the Army folks at NASA to see if I wanted to come down and work at NASA for a few years, not to be an astronaut, but kind of give it a shot. So that's when we moved to Houston. And uh, what is it, 21 years later now, we're still here. Wow. We've got so much uh, ground I want to cover today, but I'm just sitting here thinking how odd it is that two guys from Smyrna, Georgia <laughs> are having this conversation right now. Yeah. And um, we both came from hardworking, uh, middle-class families. Uh, my family didn't have a lot. Your family growing up didn't have a lot. Um, I went to the public school in Smyrna, <laughs> and I would drive occasionally as we would be going places by the Lovett School and think, that's where all the uh, you know upper-class kids go to that school. Yeah. And um, I actually took my SAT test to get into college at the Lovett School. So that's my only experience <laughs> at the Lovett School. Uh, and I didn't do great on my SAT either. <laughs> but uh, we both we both made it. I haven't made it to space yet, but we're doing okay. I want to shift gears for a little bit, and I don't want to dwell too much on this, but I want to talk about the business that you're in because it is a risky business. And I know that uh, you have been kind enough to invite me to come to your Soyuz launch in Kazakhstan, which I was so pumped about. But as I was on the way to the airport to begin the long journey to Russia and then to Kazakhstan, you let me know my launch has been scrubbed. And I don't remember all the exact details, but I remember enough that another rocket had been launched from Kazakhstan, maybe a supply rocket or some other rocket, and there had been an incident. Let's just call it that. Mm -hmm. And that put the brakes on everything. And so you know why you're not going into space because something went wrong on another rocket, but yet you've got to retool. You've got to revamp your processes of getting ready. And then several weeks or a month or so, two months, three months later, you got to get back in that rocket and you got to launch again. And I want you to talk a little bit about that. I know that most pilots I know and all the astronauts I know, are, I wouldn't say are highly emotional people. They're very cerebral. They are process-oriented. <laughs> they trust the process. They train for the process. They believe in the process. And they focus on the process. And I know you're like that. But at some point, it's got to cross your mind that things do go wrong. Yeah, it's absolutely uh, an unforgiving environment that we work in. I think it's the best way to put it. So if mistakes are made, usually the consequences are not very good. So, um, And you can apply that to a lot of different occupations, not just ours. The military certainly is one of those. And so I think it's just kind of ingrained in me from the military to, like you said, trust your training, trust your equipment, trust the process. And here at NASA, I have used those those lines as well. And if I didn't trust the training, then I needed more training. So I would go back to a certain instructor and say, hey, I need to understand wow. this better. If I didn't trust the equipment, I would need to go 
talk to the engineers that are working on the rocket or working on the capsule and have them explain to me exactly what was going on with a certain issue. So once I've done all that, then for me, I get comfortable with all of that and the whole process. And, uh, but again, and, and up to launch day from now in the next few weeks, if any of our crew is not comfortable with something going on, we're not going to launch. And uh, it's very clear. The, the management has made it very clear that they're on board with any decision that we want to make like that. Um, and it's happened in the past. And so we'll see how things just finish up the processing here in the next few weeks. It's uh, the rockets getting put together this week uh, with the first stage and the second stage that's going to get made. And then our capsule get put on top of that next week. And so, you know, all that should go smoothly, but if not, and they're not ready, then we won't launch on the 22nd. If we, the crew are not ready because we don't feel like something hasn't been addressed to our satisfaction, then we won't launch on the 22nd. So it's, it's comforting knowing the process and the, the administration and the management agrees with that process and that we're not just trying to launch to launch. Uh, we want to make sure obviously things are safe and uh, to the best of our ability. Now, our engineers are incredibly smart. They've, they've kind of thought about any potential failure that we could have, but there honestly are probably a hundred more failures out there that nobody's ever thought of. Right. So, and that's what caused things like the challenger in Columbia, just things that we had not thought of before. So we've hope, you know, hopefully we've whittled that number down. Um, but, uh, there's still something out there that, that potentially we haven't thought about. And, you know, what do you do there? Well, I absolutely rely on my faith. I, I feel people um, when they're praying for us. Um, prayers are huge in my world. And uh, both times I've launched, I've been completely calm on the launch pad. Absolutely. Just felt like I was exactly where I was supposed to be in life. And God had placed me there. And I knew I had so many people um, supporting me and supporting my family. That gives me great comfort um, in stressful times like that. Well, not having had all the training that you've had, um, I remember the day that you did go on the Soyuz and the reschedule meant that uh, you were there, your wife was there, but your family was mostly in Texas at the Johnson Space Center, and they were watching the launch in the, um, I guess, the VIP family seating area, watching through the glass as this rocket is going up into space. and. I was sitting there with your family and thinking about all the good things that could happen, but I was also wanting to be prepared for anything that could happen. And I don't think I had felt the gravity of what you do and what the astronaut program is all about until that moment. And I realized, you know, where we were sitting, who I was sitting next to, what the possibilities were. And I believed and was one of the people praying for you that, you know, that Godspeed is more than just a phrase you say to your astronaut friends, but it really is a blessing and a hope and a promise. But I also knew that day that um, it's a challenging situation. And uh, you mentioned Challenger, um, something that I, I very much remember, a tragedy that really hit hard at our whole nation. I think a school teacher was on board that flight and a lot of Kids were watching in classrooms around America. It was a sub-freezing day in Florida, very rare on the day of the launch of that shuttle mission. And obviously it ended tragically in uh, just a few minutes after liftoff. Um, but you had a sort of a redeeming moment in that uh, because of your relationship with Principal Karen at Clear Lake High School. 
And I want you to talk about that story and tell people a little bit about what unfolded. Yeah, it was such a special thing for me, and it still is, to be a small part of kind of redeeming that story, like you mentioned. So um, all astronauts, when we go to space, we generally get a small you know, kind of bag of personal items that we can bring. And uh, generally, we're not limited by a number of things. It's just what, what you can cram into this little bag. So um, the Challenger crew was no different. They, they had taken things from their families and from their universities, potentially, and schools and things that were special to them. And uh, as most of you remember, the Challenger, about a minute and a half into the flight, kind of started coming apart. It was a really bad day. Um, nobody survived, of course. And in the days and weeks um, after that, um, some of the uh, wreckage would kind of start floating up onto the beaches in Florida um, because it just went off the coast there. Um, one of the items that was recovered was a soccer ball that Ellison Onizuka, one of the astronauts, was taking up to space for his daughter's soccer team. And that soccer team was at Clear Lake High School, like you mentioned. So um, as I was preparing for my last flight, I went to our kids were going to the high school as well at the time. And uh, Dr. Karen Engel, the principal at the time, I went to her. Um, she was a good friend and still is a good friend and asked her, is there anything I can take for the high school up to space with us? And she said, oh, yeah, here's a few. I think she gave me a few medallions and some special medals that they give to certain you know, outstanding students. And uh, I said, great, no problem. And then a couple of weeks later, she called me and she's like, hey, can I add something else to your list? I'm like, yeah, I think we still have a, a week or so to get things together. And she's like, uh, you got to come you got to come to the school and I'll show you. I don't want to tell you. So went over there and lo and behold, there's this soccer ball that, that was from the wreckage of Challenger um, that they have stored. The high school has stored it because the family, the Onizuka family gave it back to the high school. Um, and it's all torn and tattered and really bad shape, but you can still see signatures on it from all the girls on the soccer team. Um, and this was 1986 soccer team and, wow. you know, wish best wishes and Godspeed Challenger and this really neat message that you can kind of faintly break out on the soccer ball. And, and so she's like, she told me the story and of course I have tears in my eyes, but I'm like, absolutely. We're going to take this to space and get it to where it was intended to go in the first place. So, um, we had to be very delicate as we took the air out of it. Um, and then we launched it and packed it. And then once it got to the space station, we have an air pump on the space station. So we delicately blew it up. And then I flew that thing around every module of the space station, got some pictures and videos of it. Um, just, kind of getting that ball where it was supposed to be in the first place, and that's to space. So um, the, the really cool part about that um, was coming home. And then um, a few months after we returned, I got to present that soccer ball back to the Onizuka family. Um, and then during that, it was at a halftime of our local high school football game. But uh, while, while I was doing that, the entire 1986 women's soccer team was also in attendance. And it was, it was just a really special moment. Um, to kind of close the loop for the family and that soccer team um, and for me to be a small part of that. So it was really special. Wow. And the soccer ball now is where? So it's prominent, prominently displayed in the new Clear Lake High School, which they've just rebuilt it. And as soon as you walk in the main uh, foyer there, it's in, a, it's in a beautiful glass case there for all to see. Wow. Well, I hope every kid at Clear Lake High School gets to hear this podcast because maybe some of them don't even know that story. And it'd be, be amazing to think as a 10th grader or 11th grader that I'm walking into school every day and I'm seeing this, you can overcome. There's always uh, beauty from ashes 
God always has a plan. And to walk by that every day would be pretty powerful. Uh, I'm working, obviously, around this idea right now, Shane, uh, don't give the enemy a seat at your table. Um, This idea that we allow the enemy to get in our minds and in our heads and to plant these thoughts. And a lot of times we get into a dialogue with the enemy around these thoughts, and we have the potential and the power to actually excuse him from our table, the table of our mind, and to think the thoughts that God wants us to think. And I know all of us know on the earth that the enemy is is after our thoughts, our minds all the time. But somehow you kind of think once you get into space, maybe you get into the invisible, you know, bubble and <laughs> you don't have temptation. You don't have negative thoughts. The enemy's not, you know, on your case. But tell us about how the enemy gets in your head even when you're in space. It definitely is there. The, the enemy definitely wants to get into our heads as well and at our floating table, if you want to call it that. I think the, the way that happens mostly up there is uh, there's a couple of ways. It can happen amongst the crew, right? You can start these little negative things going on. And uh, I think negativity creeps in quite a bit. Uh, this wasn't new to me. Um, military units kind of do this as well when you're kind of deployed and, you know, it's just you and the, you know, the team all the time. So you're kind of picking on each other and that can somewhat be healthy, but a lot of times it turns into not so healthy. And, and that can be a, a thing on the space station as well with the crews. Um, we're very diverse people, but we're a, a lot alike in a lot of ways, of course, all the astronauts. So uh, we try to kind of hash some of these issues out or most of them, hopefully before we fly with our training and things that we do as a crew, but uh, things still creep in. Right. And I, the crew can kind of get, um, I would just call it negative, honestly, and and not just towards each other, but towards the the amazing people on the ground, the mission control teams around the world that are supporting us every day. So it gets frustrating sometimes when we're doing, say, a procedure and it just doesn't make sense. And why, you know, our brains will go to, you know, the enemy wants us to be like, why in the world would you ever send me this procedure when you know it's just not, doesn't make sense. And, and so you can go there pretty easily because it's just really challenging to write something on the ground. And it would be perfect to execute a a science experiment, for example, you know, 250 miles above the earth and the translations and different nationalities trying to read it and use it. So there's a lot of potential for, for strife there between the crew on board and the the ground teams. And we try to really watch that on my last crew. We were very aware of this and wanted to make sure even if, you know, anywhere around the space station, you can hear your other crewmates when they're calling the ground. Um, about an issue and you can you can tell when their tones are, are not appropriate um, because they're very frustrated and we that's just a way i think the enemy sneaks in to kind of create this division between us and the ground teams and we don't want that we we so appreciate these ground teams and all the work they're doing and the, the six months of shift work that they're doing for us it's not just us sacrificing and our families but it's them and their families as well so um, when I was the commander on the last time on the space station, it was really important to me to make sure we weren't um, kind of creating this divide between the ground teams and our crew. So uh, I was, uh, we worked really hard on it. I think we did a really decent job. We're not perfect, but uh, you know, I think we'll try to do the same this time. Um, Aki Hoshide, who's a Japanese astronaut, he's going to be the commander when we're there for most of the time. And I think he'll have a similar take because uh, he's worked in the mission control teams for most of his astronaut career. So he understands those rooms as well. And we want to make sure that we're honoring them um, and just not creating something. Now, another place where this can come in is with our families, right? So we, 
we do have great communication capabilities from the space station. We can, I was talking to Robbie, my wife, every day uh, when I was up there the last time, and we get a video conference once a week with our family. So that's, that's very nice. Uh, but I think the enemy can creep in there as well. Um, I think that's probably the biggest thing because I'd call home and instead of being engaged and wanting to talk sometimes um, and listen to Robbie, I was just kind of, I was there, but I was checked out and I wasn't engaging like I should. Uh, and, you know, it would be very evident. Robbie would notice it. I would kind of notice it too, but I wasn't making corrections sometimes. And and so it's something I really had to fight with to make sure when I was calling home, when I was talking to the family, I was 100% engaged. And it, it took me a little while to figure that out honestly. And I think that's just a, a way that the enemy is kind of stepping into our table there to try to try to break kind of those incredible bonds that, that our family has and other, other astronaut families have as well. So um, there's a few ways that definitely the-, the You have an incredible it. family and um, I know they support you a lot, but talk about the balance because I think some of the people listening uh, to our conversation are- they're, they're feeling what you're talking about right now. They want to accomplish great things. They want to make an impact. They want their one shot on planet Earth to count. Uh, and they want to lead their family well. They want to be a good husband or a good, a good wife, a good mother. They want to, you know, see their kids grow up with vision the same way you have to do great things in life. How do, how has all that worked together for you? I know in your last uh, time on the station, you're, you got extended. So the family now thinks dad's coming home. Robbie thinks my husband's coming home. And then all of a sudden, not only are you not coming home, but you're staying for a while. And um, so, you know, there's all kinds of uh, issues in the mix. And how have you managed to sort of walk that tightrope? Yeah, that's a, that's another great question. It's, you know, in our case, Robbie has the, been the, the one that's held it all together for sure. She's, uh, works, works way harder at all this than I did. And honestly, the families have such a more difficult time than we, the astronaut do in, in our situation. So, and it may apply to other people that are listening as well, but, um, you know, I can't thank Robbie and the kids enough for, um, supporting me for one. Uh, but it really it's supporting all of us. It's a family deal. It's not just me going to space because there's so many more layers of that with our family that are involved and it's not easy on them. I totally understand that. It's, um, it's very stressful on them, especially around the launch time frame. Uh, once we get safely into orbit, it, it kind of throttles back a little bit on the stress for them, but you know, it's still stressful for them because of the unforgiving environment that we talked about earlier of space that I'll be living in for about another six months. So, um, uh, it, it's hard. I, you know, we try to stay connected. Like I said, um, that's the biggest thing we tried to, Robbie and I tried to make it as normal as possible, if that's even possible, um, to our kids during our last flight. And what do I mean by that? Well, it's, um, you know, checking in with them as much as I could emailing them, you know, if they have homework questions, they could email them to me and I could just answer their homework questions potentially. And if I couldn't figure out this problem, somebody on the space station could, right? So we try, wanted to just try to keep it normal for them and, and not this really big deal. And um, our girls at the time were just starting their freshman year in college. And so they were off on a new adventure. And, you know, without my flight, it was just an exciting time in their life. And Honestly, they didn't probably care a whole lot about my mission until, you know, I get to video with them like this. And then their, their roommates are walking in the dorm room going, what's that? You know, and then they're all proud to show that, oh, that's my dad floating around. And 
you know, so it's pretty, it was just a cool way to do it. Um, get your question of, of, you know, leading and kind of stressful situations like this. It's again, Robbie's been the true leader and um, really driven us. We both um, really are faith-based and, and we've had that luxury our, our whole married life and, and even prior to that. So that's the rock that we stand on. Um, uh, we always fall back on God's plan. This is all what God wanted to do. And that gives us comfort even in times like this. And we get doubtful as we're, you know, leading up to launch for sure. You know, Hey, should I really be doing this again? And, you know, Robbie's like, what happens if, you know, this happens and all that. So we're trying to, to plan for some contingencies and, and do that ahead of time in case things do go wrong. Um, I think that's an important point for a lot of us just here on earth, just to have contingency plans in case things don't go the way you, you think they might. And, um, of course, things happen all the time that we don't expect. And we've done a good job. We've had plenty of those curveballs thrown our way over the years. So we've had some experience and know how to handle those things. And now we're trying to help our children kind of understand that as well and you know, how to handle things when they're not going perfectly. There's a new a sort of merger between NASA and um, all the cool kids from <laughs> California. Uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX and NASA are now partners. So when you come out, I don't know all my official language, but when you come out of the crew area to head to the rocket, you're not getting in some kind of van or, you know, some kind of official NASA looking thing. You're getting in a Tesla when you walk out in a super cool spacesuit, which, you know, I love the old style, but this new spacesuit is pretty legit. You're getting in a white Tesla. You're driving out to the rocket in a Tesla. Everything's a little bit uh, different now. And uh, I'm not trying to put uh, you in a in between a rock and a hard place. We got NASA, and um, you've been kind enough to give me an inside look into NASA. It's amazing, and it feels very historic. feels like you're looking at a snapshot of the space journey in America. And then you got Tesla, and everything is brand spanking new. <laughs> and... Their command center, you know, looks like something you'd see in a movie scene. Uh, talk about the balance of being in between NASA and SpaceX. Yeah, it's it's really a cool spot to be in, honestly. Uh, it is amazing. We did a lot of training out at the SpaceX facility in Hawthorne, California. That's where their training center is. And uh, it's it's every time we go out there, it's just super inspiring and motivating just because the the kids, as you call them, the 20 somethings are, are working so hard and they're so motivated and, and they're so knowledgeable, um, even without a whole lot of, you know, time and experience under their belt. So it's really awesome working with them. You know, we NASA kind of provide a little bit of the experience factor for them. We've been doing it for a while as an agency, um, but they move so quickly and do things that there's no way we could do, um, It'll take them a day to do things that it takes us literally six months to do just do the do the bureaucracy. So that's that's honestly helped NASA and helped us think out of the box a lot more than we used to. And to me, that's a really healthy relationship. Um, sometimes they move too fast and, and you know they pay the price, you know. Um, but uh, in general, the, the fast moving, you know, out of the box thinking is really impressive, and and what they've done so far and the, and you know, the short time they've been around is really incredible. So we're looking forward to flying with them and meeting the people there um, is fantastic. Uh, if you ever get a chance to go out there to tour, I highly recommend it because the whole facility 
um, is they build everything on the rocket right there. So from the engines to the actual rocket body to the satellites that are that may go on it, everything is built in-house and you just walk down a hangar floor and just see everything being built. So it's a very impressive operation. Again, something that NASA is just is too uh, government-oriented to be able to do. But uh, working together, we make a great team because um, NASA is providing kind of the safety and the, the history of, of things when they don't work so well. And that's a very important piece, especially when you're going to put humans on a vehicle. Um, SpaceX has been launching you know, vehicles without humans on them for a while. But uh, in order to put a human on it, it takes a lot more safety factors. And NASA has been instrumental in making sure that SpaceX has gotten to that level to put a human on a vehicle. Yeah, speaking of the humans, one of your crewmates is going to be riding in the same seat, I think, that her husband actually rode in on uh, a launch not too long ago. That's a pretty weird dynamic that I'm guessing has never happened in space history before. Yeah, I don't think that's ever happened. That's a great point. So the very first human test flight um, on the SpaceX Crew Dragon was last May, where uh, Bob Bankin and Doug Hurley were the test pilots on that mission. So the person you're talking about there is Bob Bankin. He was the pilot on uh, the spacecraft called Endeavor that they named. And uh, we are flying on that same spacecraft, Endeavor. So they've refurbished it after their landing. And they're just tidying it up right now. We got to get in it last week for the first time. It was really amazing. And then Megan Bankin, uh, or Megan MacArthur Bankin, who is the pilot on my flight, is Bob's wife. And she's flying, like you said, in the same seat, same position on the same spacecraft that her husband flew on less than a year ago. So your pilot is uh, Megan. Sounds like everywhere we go, because Shelly's driving most of the time. <laughs> everywhere uh, Giglio family's going. Right. Works out better that way right. for everybody. A couple of quick questions. Uh, reentry. I, I want to talk about it real fast. You've come down uh, several different ways from space now. Which was the craziest of the two you've come down on so far? And what is the expectation coming down on this um, this third rocket. You're going to splash down if everything goes according to plan in the Atlantic Ocean. Is that right? Either the Atlantic or the Gulf of Mexico. They're all, they have seven landing okay, sites. So you got a couple of options there. Yep. You can go to Cancun or you can go to <laughs> Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. It's up, up to you. <laughs> Not up to but us. Tell, but us about, tell us about coming down. And um, I know when you were doing some of the training for the Soyuz, uh, it just sounded crazy to me that the things you were having to put your body through to get ready to splash down. Cause that is a, is a earth landing. And uh, what's the difference between an earth landing and a water landing? And how, how excited are you for those last <laughs> two minutes coming yeah. down? Yeah. So my first flight was on the space shuttle. And, and most of you remember that just lands on a runway. So the landing piece of that is super smooth, right? It's just, you're just cruising on your glider that's coming on a runway. So, that was kind of the cool way, smooth way to do it. Now, as we came through the atmosphere on the space shuttle, uh, I was expecting, because all I, my only experience was like movies, I thought we'd be just rocking and rolling and shaking around as we're coming through that 3,000 degree plasma, but it was super smooth and it only lasted like maybe 40 seconds, 45 seconds. And I was like, wait, that's it? <laughs> I was kind of disappointed because it was just so smooth. And so that entry was really great. Um, the heat shield on the shuttle, the bottom of the space shuttle. That's what we pointed as we're going into that that heat and uh, protected us beautifully. And then again, we landed. We just cruised in on a runway. Now contrast that with the the Soyuz, uh, much different. 
Um, as we're coming through the atmosphere there, um, the bottom of our Soyuz spacecraft, much smaller spacecraft, is the heat shield. So that's what's facing the heat. And uh, I have a window right next to me. And literally, as we're going through that, we're kind of shaking around a bit, but pieces are falling off and burning off and floating by my window. And I'm like, I hope that's the right piece that's burning off, right? And it was just the most surreal thing. And and they're kind of floating slowly by you. And you're like, wow, that was a big chunk. And and so, and then the dynamics, once you kind of get through the atmosphere and the parachutes start opening on the Soyuz, it was like the wildest ride I'd ever been on. You're just getting thrown around. G-forces are building up, up to about four or four and a half Gs. And after you haven't felt gravity in a while, that's a lot of G-force. Um, and my, I kind of looked over my Russian commander and he just keeps going, it's normal. It's normal. And I'm just like, this cannot be normal. <laughs> Cause, you know, and you can't train on that. So this is just a, you know, they kind of, you've been told about it, but you can't ever train that for real. So it was unbelievably dynamic. Um, and then once the parachutes finally settled out as we're kind of cruising in, it got really smooth and calm the last maybe 2000 meters coming down. And then we crush into the ground, uh, the deserts and steps of Kazakhstan. Hardest thing I've ever felt in my life. It was, you know, I equated to just maybe a really bad car crash where you just get crushed. And it, the ride wasn't over at that point, unfortunately. So um, our parachutes, as soon as we landed, inflated again. And so they were dragging us across the, the desert as, and we were rolling and flipping. Okay, that's that's not a good feeling when you're just coming back to gravity. So we did that three or four times until. I leaned over and told my commander, I think we've hit the ground. You can cut the parachutes now. And so he has a little button to cut the parachutes. And then we stopped rolling at that point. But uh, we were uh, definitely caged our gyros a little differently than we expected. Most of the times the Soyuz will just come down and it'll hit hard, but it just plops. Uh, and we could, we kind of got the e-ticket right there, I guess. For those of you that remember that from Disney way back when, a um, little bonus ride there. Now, SpaceX, I think it's going to be, you know, pretty dynamic as well coming through the atmosphere and the parachutes opening we're gonna get several um we call them g spikes but uh, you know two to three g hits as, as the parachutes are opening and disreefing. uh but then landing in the water i asked um, bob and doug who landed uh, in august what it felt like and they said it's hard you think landing in the water will be soft but it was a very strong impact as well so we'll expect that uh and then it all depends on the, the waves what's going on the sea state if it's rough out there, then that's not going to be very helpful to us <laughs> in our health because uh, the sea sickness and the space <laughs> space adaptation sickness will will probably uh, commence pretty quickly, unfortunately. But that's just part of the business, I guess. Um, when Bob and Doug landed, it was like glass out there. They had no issues, and we're hoping to, to see similar seas, but uh, you never can tell. We'll have to deal with that when we get to it. Thank you for spending six months on the space station. Now we're going to have you <laughs> smash down on to the ground in Kazakhstan or into the ocean, yeah. get dragged by the parachutes, get seasick, and welcome home. Thank you so much for your service, uh, your service <laughs> to humanity. That's right. I know this is probably the obvious question, but it's got to be in the mind of everybody listening today. So you have a faith, obviously. You've talked a lot about that. You have a relationship with God that's been central for you and for your family. It's been really the stack pole for everything you've done in life. But yet you've also had a very, I, I don't know how to, how to describe it really, you've had a very special opportunity 
because uh, the scripture says the heavens are telling the glory of God. And you've gotten out into space and seen things from a perspective that very few people have seen. And you've experienced earth from a viewpoint that very few people ever will. And um, as I've read the stories of a lot of astronauts, some of faith, some not so much faith, it's still impacting. So for you as a person of faith, how has your relationship with God been impacted by being an astronaut? Um, I'll say, you know, a lot of people, like you mentioned, don't have faith going up there. And sometimes it actually changes them. They're like, oh, yeah, I believe it now, you know, kind of thing. And I didn't have that revelation. I was, um, to me, it just validated everything that uh, my belief system and everything I believed in growing up and as a young adult. So um, it just kind of all made sense, right? When you see Earth from that perspective, when you're looking out away from Earth into the vastness of space, it all just kind of fell into place. And again, whatever I had believed up to that point was just validated. So that's that's kind of how God placed that in my heart to just think, yeah, it's absolutely exactly as it says in the Bible, right? So uh, it's it's a special place to view Earth from. Obviously, like you mentioned, I don't take that for granted. Uh, I really would spend the the last hour or so of almost every day I was in space just looking at planet Earth out the cupola windows. And that was a good kind of quiet time that I had generally every day. Uh, I'd have one in the morning a little bit, kind of getting into the scriptures. And then in the evenings, I would just sit there and watch God's beautiful creation, planet Earth, um, as it went by. And it, it never got old. Uh, there was always something fresh and new that I was seeing that I'd never seen before. And so, again, like you mentioned, I'm, I'm very fortunate, one of the very few that will ever get to do it. Uh, I wish we could all get up there and, and kind of see Earth from that vantage point. But uh, definitely uh, strengthened you know, the faith that I had and just validated what I believed in. Well, we're proud of you and got a lot of people cheering for you. Excited, uh, Lord willing, to be at the launch in a few days. And um, But all of us uh, are just really thrilled to hear your story and to hear that perspective and to be inspired to do what it is that God's given us to do. And obviously, there are not many people on planet Earth that are called to be astronauts. Maybe a lot of people think they are, but they'll find out at the end of the day that that's a pretty narrow calling. <laughs> But everybody's called to soar. Everybody's called to beat, you know, the gravity of status quo and to reach for something that seems unattainable. But lo and behold, is actually possible if you don't give up and you keep being persistent like you were. And I just uh, underscore, I think maybe the thing that stood out the most to me in our conversation is you said that if you treat people with respect, Everywhere you go in life, you'll be surprised how many doors open before you. And I want to highlight that as maybe something that all of us can take away from this podcast because we're kind of living in a culture right now where it's like, I'll treat with you with respect if I think you deserve my respect. But just going into moments and times and jobs and interviews and classrooms and all the places you've been in and into combat. And just to see every person and say, how can I show respect to this person? Be surprised how many people will remember you, think fondly of you, <laughs> call on you when an opportunity arises. And I think for the younger listener today, um, the deposits that you're making in the respect bank of the people around you are going to come back to bring a dividend to you later in life that will surprise you. 
such good words there, Lou. I I couldn't have put it as eloquently as you did there, but that's absolutely true. Um, Doesn't matter. And I would just, you know, it doesn't matter what position somebody's in. It's the janitor or the person wiping the grocery carts down at the grocery store. Just say hello. Just say thank you for what you're doing. Just small things. Uh, but the dividends that they pay down the road for you. And that just becomes your new normal if you keep doing that. And it's a habit for you. Um, and then people will obviously notice that. And maybe they don't notice it when you think they're notice it, but they'll notice it. And, uh, and to me, it just makes me feel good to invest in other people, right? And that to me is something that's driven Robbie and I a lot is trying to invest in other people um, as we continue this kind of crazy journey that we're on. Well, you guys are in our prayers. We're... Uh... Looking forward to seeing you on the station, but we're also looking forward to seeing you back on planet Earth. So Godspeed. Thanks for joining us today. It's been an amazing privilege for all of us to have you on today. Thanks, Louie. I really appreciate it. We'll see you soon, I hope. How inspiring was that conversation? Wow. What an inspiring thought that all of us can reach to brand new heights and maximize our impact, not only on this life, but on the life to come. Thank you, Shane, for an incredible conversation and want to encourage everybody that you can download the ISS Tracker app like I have on my phone. You can check for the passes that are coming over your location like Shelly and I often do. And on a clear night, if we're up or maybe we wake up in the middle of the night, you can catch Shane going overhead on the ISS. It's pretty inspiring. If you haven't seen it, it happens pretty regularly. So thank you again for joining the podcast. I hope that you'd be kind enough to come and give us a five-star review. If you really enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends and family. And if you haven't already, of course, you can subscribe today and join us on every episode of the Passion and Purpose podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you.